welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where our hope is to inspire you to lead your best life, whatever that looks like for you, which is why I bring you interviews of women who are doing all kinds of different exciting things with their lives. And today, that exciting woman is Isabel Foxen Duke. So quite the name, Isabel is a health coach who helps women stop feeling crazy around food. Am I right? Is that kind of important? I think so. So here's the thing. I know so many incredible women who are rocking their careers and their personal lives are fantastic. They're in great relationships, fantastic kids, all that. And yet they still feel insane around food. And I would put myself in that category most of the time. So Isabel and I talk about the difference between emotional eating and binge eating, and she shares with us a little bit about her journey with food and going from being crazy around food to a cupcake's just a cupcake, which I really would love to, you know, lead my life like that. We talk about how to break free from diet culture and the tangible things that you can actually do to repair your relationship to food. We also talk about the dreaded BMI and how it was actually a social construct changed in the 90s, which I had no idea about, so it was definitely an eye-opener. And finally, we talk about Isabel's decision to switch careers from finance to health coaching and the journey that that entailed. And we also talk about the book that changed the way that Isabel thinks about the world. So it was a really great interview. Now, Isabel has an upcoming masterclass on how to stop fighting food. So that is coming up in September. It's really not that far away. So if you want to sign up, I've got all the links in the show notes. So that's at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash three four because we're on episode 34. I'm pretty pumped about that, guys. I can't believe how far we've come already in such a short period of time. I'm pretty excited about it. Now, one thing I do need to let you know before the interview starts We struggled with the audio on this one, guys. I don't know what was happening with Skype that day. It's And funnily enough, it's actually the second time we recorded it. The first time didn't record. It was such an epic failure on my part. And Skype, I'm having such issues with the application at the moment. I think everyone else going through the update is feeling my pain. Anyways, we did struggle a bit with the audio, so there are times where it crinkles a little bit. And I'm hoping that you'll bear with us. But for the most part, it was fairly decent. So... Without further ado, let's head over to the interview. Okay, well, thank you so much, Isabel, for joining us on the podcast. We're really excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This is such a treat. And yeah, let, let's do it. I'm excited. Yeah. And so the listeners know this is our second go around at this because Skype was a major jerk the per- first time around, but it's going to be better than ever. And we're looking at some different questions. So it should be a fun. It'll be a fun time. I'm, I'm ready. Let's do it. So there are some great podcast episodes in, uh, out there that where you really describe your story and your relationship with food in in a lot of detail, and I want to make sure that I link to those, but I'm hoping that you could give us sort of the condensed version of of what your relationship was like with food growing up and how it affected you. All right. Well, so just to give people a sense of what I was dealing with sort of in a nutshell, I was put on my first diet when I was very, very young. I was about three years old when it was recommended to my parents by my pediatrician that, um, they basically try to control my weight, right? I was, was high on the baby BMI scale. And so my my pediatrician said, ah, ah, better watch your weight, you know, better make sure your baby, you know, doesn't get too bad, basically was the message that I was, that, that my parents were receiving. And so my parents started controlling my food at, at, at 
young and age of three. And um, I don't really have a conscious memory of not being on a diet of some kind beyond that point, right? Beyond that point, my entire life revolved around trying to control my food to some extent and then typically, right, having periods where I was completely losing control, right, completely feeling like, oh, gosh, uh, like, I just can't hold back any longer. I just want that chocolate cake, and I'm going to eat all of it, right? So it was just this con- very classic, from a very young age, I was sort of doing this very classic diet binge cycling thing. Um, and as I had more control over my own food re- relative to my parents, of course, you know, thought, thought oh, you know, I always thought of my body as something that I had to make smaller, right? Like I, again, body, you know, basically was body shamed at a very, very young age. So I always got the message, oh, you better become, you got to lose weight, got to lose weight, got to lose weight. Your body's not okay. Your body's not okay the way it is. Your body's, so I was always trying to become smaller, always trying to control my food. Uh, But again, typically very often and very frequently having these, you know, episodes where I just couldn't stand it any longer. And I would have these wild binge eating episodes, or I would sneak food in the middle of the night, hoping no one catches me. I was, you know, thinking about food all the time, whether it was what I shouldn't eat, what I couldn't eat, planning the next diet, fantasizing about what my life would be like when I finally was thin enough. And then on the flip side, just like, you know, the chocolate cake and the, you know, the birthday cake that was left over from the party in the kitchen would taunt me, right? It would taunt me. It almost would be like I'd be be in my bedroom as a little girl and I'd hear the cake being like, eat me, eat me, you don't know, you know, like it was like, I felt this, this tug of war with myself between just constantly feeling like I needed to control my food and control my size. And then just feeling like, oh my gosh, I just want the cake. I just want to eat it all. And having, again, these sort of wild binge eating episodes, just feeling like my hunger, if I did not sit on my hands, trying not to eat, my hunger would be insatiable, right? Like if if I did, that was how I felt. If I don't, literally do my power to hold back, you know, whatever diet I'm going to be on that day, right? Or form of restriction. If I didn't do the thing to try to not, not eat, not eat, if I let myself go, I would just eat everything that wasn't in and down and it like my hunger was insatiable, right? Like I was just, I, I identified as a food addict. So, but basically, you know, this was sort of my life with food for a long time, was just feeling like, you know, I had to control my food. I had to try to lose weight. My body was not okay. And simultaneously feeling like, oh my gosh, all I want to do is eat those chocolate chips in the cupboard, right? And so again, very classic diet binge cycling kind of behavior um, up until, you know, a certain age where I started to, um, and, and of course, you, you know, weight cycling, like I was yo-yoing up and down like crazy as well throughout most of my childhood. But really, once I got into high school, and once I had more control over my own food, like once I had the ability to make my, my own choices around food, and my parents weren't involved as much, the diets would become more extreme, and the binge eating episodes would become more extreme. And so I was really I had massive weight fluctuations throughout most of high school. So, uh, yeah, and that was, you know, that I think, I think, you know, so many women sort of relate to this idea of feeling like I need to control myself around food. And like, if I let myself go, I would just like want to eat everything, every, every, you know, all I would want to eat is chocolate cake. Right. And so I was sort of living that probably to an extreme. I mean, I certainly, this was very progressive for me. It got worse and worse and worse, right? These these sort of diet, I mean, that's sort of how diet binge cycling works or how yo-yo dieting works really is it gets more and more progressive and more and more extreme typically as time goes on. And so that was sort of the case for me until I got to a point where I basically was like, 
full-blown, like, binge, you know, sort of diagnosed binge eating disorder at one point. And that was the beginning of me trying to find solution, which was unusually difficult to find, right? I mean, I went to very, I went to all sorts of doctors, I went to all sorts of clinicians, I was in you know, various inpatient treatments for eating disorder, binge eating disorder. And I was getting a lot of conflicting information, right? I mean, this is definitely an area of medicine where there's not a lot of consensus. There's a lot of mixed messages, a lot of confusing things happening in the treatment world. And so, yeah, so it took me several little years to really kind of understand what the root of this problem was to really get to the point where I was willing to work on like dealing with some of the roots of this problem. And, and it's typically, I think, not what people always think because it's eating is so normalized in our culture. It's assumed you should be able to control your food. You should be able to control your weight, right? You know, a lot of times, you know, I never really thought of myself as a person with a dieting problem or or food control problem. I just thought, what's wrong with me that I can't stick? What's wrong with me that I can't just eat the way I'm supposed to eat? Why do I always constantly have these binge eating episodes? So for a very, very long time, I just would villainize the binge eating, and I wasn't willing to look at you know, the body shame and the constant attempts at control and the constant deprivation that ultimately was sort of setting me up for that behavior. Um, and that's, and there were, you know, various other factors that kind of go along with that, that I kind of had to learn to deal with over time. Yeah. And so did that involve sort of counseling or self-reflection or combination thereof? Yeah, it involved a lot of things. I mean, it 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 evolved like a pretty elaborate education, which is one of the reasons why I do the work that I do now is that there's not a lot of places where you can get this education in a really solid way. I mean, I was I picked up various different tidbits of information from different people, from different professionals, from di- different books, from different research, but it was very challenging when I was in treatment. At the time, there was really no one who was talking about what I consider to be like, you know, very, very important key principles to recovery. Um, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that our medical system and the people who are actually treating quote unquote binge eating disorder often are really working within a quite weight normative framework, meaning they're working within the framework of thin is good, fat is bad. They're working within the cultural framework that is creating this problem to begin with. So, you know, this is, you know, binge eating. I think binge eating is often looked at as this thing that is sort of like what's wrong with you that you can't control uh, how much you're eating. What is what is wrong with you that you, you know, there must be something wrong with you that you can't stick to whatever. Or there must be something wrong with you that you feel, you know, so out of control. And it, it's, I think it's rarely, there's not nearly as much of an emphasis on understanding dieting or restriction or body shame being the root of this problem that I, that I believe actually is the root of this problem, right? And so, yeah, there's a lot of conflicting um, messages being thrown around as far as treatment is concerned, because we live in a culture which normalizes the problem of dieting and the problem of diet culture, right? And the problem of, you know, the need to be thin, right? As long as that's normalized in our medical system, treatment for eating disorders is going to be really challenging um, and going to have a lot of, you know, mixed messages. So how would you describe your relationship with food now? How do you feel around cake now? I mean, cake is delicious. <laughs> I, 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 particularly frosting. I love, I, I, I love all delicious foods, right? 
but it doesn't have power over me today in the way that it once did, right? Like it's, it is just cake, right? And I, I used to want to kill people who, who used to say to me, why can't you just eat? It's just food. Don't worry about it. And I, I hated when people would say that to me when I was struggling because I'd be like, you don't understand. It's not just cake. I'm a food addict. Da, 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 you know, blah, 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 blah. But the reality of the situation is once I actually healed sort of the underlying body image issues, underlying diet mentality, underlying all of these feelings that I had around cake that ultimately made it so anxiety provoking for me and made it so like this toy that I wanted to touch but couldn't touch, like, you know, the child in the toy store who sees the toy and says, don't touch the toy, right? Like once I sort of actually allowed myself to have cake freely for an extended period of time, right? Cake actually kind of became sort of like, oh, well, like whatever, it's no big deal, right? Like when I when I stopped looking at cake as this like seductive temptress that, you know, I shouldn't have, but I really want it, and, uh, right? Like this torrid love affair of like, you know, we can't be together, but I love you and I want to be with you, but no, it's wrong, right? Like <laughs> when I stopped thinking about cake in that way and just started thinking about it as like a thing that I can have, that I actually legitimately am entitled to have whenever I want as a human. And I'm not afraid of like, weight gain. I'm not afraid of, you know, I'm not terrified by the idea of, oh God, what's the cake going to do to me? What's, uh, what's the cake? I didn't really recognize at the time that that sort of anxiety around cake was the source of, you know, all of my emotional discomfort, but also the source of my binging, right? Like that is what drove my binge eating behaviors forward. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, today it's just sort of, I actually do have a quote unquote normal relationship with cake after having sort of relinquished you know, all of the ways of thinking, all diet mentality ways of thinking around that cake so over and that. Yeah. Do you have a scale in your house? I do not. So I just um, recently took a hammer to my scale and was really disappointed that it was made of such reinforced glass that it wouldn't even shatter. Uh, I was really, I was really hoping for that moment. Like I thought it would be super satisfying, but I had kind of just got to the point of feeling like these three numbers just dictate my confidence. And I don't want to let this piece of glass have that kind of control over me anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Throw that out. I mean, it's just, it's just a ridiculous piece of machinery. It doesn't actually tell you anything other than like, you know, what is that and, and what weight is is basically like it's like you know like like your body mass relative to like the pull of gravity or there's some sort of like scientific definition of weight and that's all it is right it's not a measurement of health it's not a measurement of beauty it's not a measurement of anything it's just this like thing it's just, just this arbitrary number that we culturally assign all this meaning to but it's completely unnecessary the, the, the fact that we culturally assign all of this meaning to it is it's a pre- it's oppression, right? Especially of women, but I think increasingly of all of all gender spectrums. So yeah, I think that this it's it's just a completely useless piece of equipment, and I don't really see the point in owning one. I think even in doctors' offices, they are substantially overused. I think in most cases, um, weighing even in the doctor's office is unnecessary. You know, minus a couple specific, very medically appropriate examples, having to do with like, for instance, pregnancy or uh, like certain like, diagnosis of certain cancers, those kinds of things. But for the most part, you know, the scale is completely. It's like a useless piece of equipment. It doesn't really give us any information about what's going on with a person's body. So what do you tell people who are like, oh, but my BMI says I'm overweight, even if they look and feel healthy? 
I would say that that's bullshit. I mean, it's completely culturally defined, right? So this is where we start to get into, and I sort of alluded to this before when I was talking about with some of the issues with our treatment programs, with this, with eating disorder treatment. Our medical system is completely fucked. I hope no one minds me using, you know, dropping we'll some We'll mark F-bombs. it explicit, totally fine. Right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Our, our medical system is a disaster when it comes to this particular topic. Very, very highly corrupt in many different ways for many different reasons that are almost too deep for me to get into on this podcast. I mean, I'd have to really talk. I could write like my PhD thesis about all all of the different reasons why the way we treat weight in our medical system is problematic and harming actively very, very much harming people and, you know, sort of why these systems came into place and how they, it was never really about um, actually wanting to protect people it always had to do with sort of other issues within the medical system, again, more complicated than I can probably get into on this podcast. Um, but the the concept of BMI is completely socially constructed, right? So in fact, like in the 90s at some point, you know, there was like a, people were sort of observing like, huh, huh, you know, average weights have went up a little bit in the, uh, specifically in the 80s, I believe. And the 90s, it became this public health policy where we were like, oh, you know what? Let's, why don't we encourage what we'll do is we'll lower what we call full BMI. Yeah. Right. Like our medical system, based, this is like an invented concept, the concept of BMI, the concept of like, like where these cutoffs happen, like the cutoffs between, you know, like overweight, quote unquote obese, which is a term I hate, you know, like all of these cutoffs, all of these sort of weight cutoffs for health are, are pretty, they're, they're politically constructed, right? Also, like they exist primarily for like political purposes. I mean, and and when I say socially constructed, meaning like literally like there's like a bunch of doctors like scratching their heads being like, huh, where should we decide to call people's bodies not okay? And the reasons for why they make these cutoffs are again, very complicated, very politically influenced, right? For instance, just to give you an example of like some of the just like total debauchery that goes into this complete BS. Um, In the 90s, right, there were people, sort of policymakers were having discussions about what they were going to do about the fact that, you know, average weights had risen in the 80s by, you know, I think it was like 14 or 15 pounds. There's average weight jump in the 80s that had happened for, you know, variety of reasons. In the 90s, policymakers were sort of asking, oh, what are we going to do about this, like, average weight drop? And so what they decided was that they were going to lower the recommended BMI. They were gonna say that a, a lower BMI, they were gonna lower what is considered a healthful BMI because quote unquote, they thought that that would motivate people to lose weight. So it's like, these are the kinds of things that are actually creating these, these lines in the sand are actually quite arbitrary. And also I will make the point, I think the biggest issue, right, is um, these lines in the sand all assume that all bodies are the same, right? They assume that genetics play no factor in how your body is designed and how one person may look relative to another person. They completely deny the concept of body diversity. I mean, I think that this is an issue in our medical system in general, right? Is actually our medical system sort of operates like a factory, right? Like we don't necessarily take into consideration individuality to the extent that probably we should. Um, And I think there's no greater example of this than in the instance of BMI or weight, right? 
rate is by things like genetics, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, my body at five foot six is not supposed to look like every other body at five foot six. Every body at five foot six is going to be genetically inclined and biologically predisposed to be slightly different weights. This is, or not even slightly, potentially like just different weights, period, right? And these, um, this is completely ignored by the concept of BMI. The concept of BMI, the idea of BMI rests under the assumption that all bodies are pretty much supposed to look the same within like a relatively narrow window. And we are going to judge people's health based on how well they fit into these boxes, even though we don't actually really have all that much strong evidence to suggest that these fitting into these boxes is representative of health, right? There are plenty of people in all various BMI categories who do not have heart disease, who do not have diabetes, you know, all of these issues, right? And so um, weight is a very ineffective way to judge someone's health. I think one of the reasons outside of politics that that sort of this medical system is happening is you, you often hear in, in sort of the body image world and the sort of body positivity or health at every size world, you hear people talking about the difference between correlation and versus causation, right? So if there's a correlation between two things happening, right, if there's a correlation between weight gain and let's say heart disease or diabetes, all of a sudden people will just assume, oh, weight gain causes heart disease and diabetes. When in reality, that's not necessarily true, right? There are lots of people who are bigger, who are just genetically predisposed to be bigger, who are actually quite healthy, who will never have heart disease or diabetes, right? And so all these people are basically, they're getting screwed, right? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and so this is a very, you know, judging people's health on the basis of BMI is, you know, incredibly lazy on top of everything else. Again, I could go on and on about yeah. this topic around sort of why this sort of BMI conversation is so problematic and so unethical. I mean, really medically unethical. Um, but yeah, that's just sort of like some some tidbits about yeah. it. The, the concept of BMI is, is actually pretty ridiculous. Well, and you'll cringe at this. So I once upon a time went through the Weight Watchers system and they actually will not, well, in, at least in my experience, would not let you set a goal weight that like the goal weight had to be within that healthy BMI range. And I found for oh my. myself, like I set mine at the top of my BMI range because that and like and just when I was naturally not counting calories or doing all of this, my body was happy at, you know, 150 pounds, which technically put me as overweight. But mm. I felt great. I looked good. And I like I, I could sustain that without driving myself nuts counting calories or points or whatever it was. But I was t- medically overweight yeah it's complete bullshit and you know what's interesting is like in the 70s maybe you wouldn't have even been considered medically overweight because they literally changed the definitions of what overweight is depending on their like basically like these like ridiculous sort of like political whims like hmm, maybe if we lower maybe if we tell people that they're overweight they'll be motivated to you know pursue thinness harder i mean that's just all of this stuff like i don't think that people realize that these Um, categories of BMI are not, I mean, the concept of BMI is very much, it's an invention, right? Like it's an invention of the past like 70, 80 years, right? Like, and it's a tool that is designed to basically make people feel like shit about themselves. Um, It's not necessarily a super accurate predictor of, I mean, it's not an accurate predictor of health, really. Sure, you know, you may see higher incidence of certain diseases in certain at certain BMI, but 
there are also plenty of very healthful people in higher BMI categories who will never incur those illnesses, right? So it's just, you know, it's, it's a very, a very lazy and very, yeah. very problematic. Yeah, it's a very, very problematic way to understand your body. And I think that this is one of, I think this is like one of the biggest problems in our medical industry right now is sort of the way that we treat weight. It's very, very, very harmful. Yeah. Yeah. So. I could go on all day. So I'm hoping you could describe for listeners the difference between emotional eating and binge eating because you've got very different definitions for them that where I think your average person, myself previously included, would get them very mixed up or think they were the same thing. So what what are the differences? Yeah, so most people do just assume when I say like what what is binge eating, most people will sort of define it as like emotional eating a lot or emotional eating that feels quote unquote out of control, which typically for most people is just a fancy way of saying a lot, you know, and a lot, however they define it, right? Like, you know, it's just like, it's often this very self-determined quote unquote too much. It's not actually very scientific or very precise or specific at all, right? It's just like, oh, it's just, I crossed the line into this horrendously like reprehensible amount of food I binged, right? And it's this incredibly self-judgmental thing. Um, I think that's a horrible definition <laughs> of the term binge eating. Um, and I think it doesn't actually really do anyone any good. It doesn't actually help you do anything to sort of you know, address these behaviors and sort of approach these behaviors. It doesn't serve any purpose other than self-judgment. So the way that I've sort of delineated between these two things is emotional eating is pretty straightforward. Most people understand what emotional eating is, right? It's the concept of just, you know, I'm having an uncomfortable feeling or I'm having, you know, a feeling that I, you know, just don't, I, I want to get away from. So I'm going to distract myself or comfort myself or soothe myself with the pleasure of food, right? Like the actual pleasure of delicious food on my taste buds, right? I it's, When I'm bored, I'm going to go get, you know, a piece of chocolate from the cupboard or, you know, when I'm feeling anxious, I want to go eat whatever, right? Most people understand basically what emotional eating is. And that's all emotional eating is. It's just the act of using food for the purpose of soothing or comforting yourself, which I think is certainly very, very, very common in diet culture. We know that emotional eating is heavily correlated with dieting. So the more of a dieting history somebody has, the more likely they are to turn to food for comfort, right? The more likely they are to have that sort of comfort soothing relationship with food. But theoretically, somebody who's never dieted in the world could also, you know, have a moment where they're like, I'm bored, I'm going to have a cupcake because like, why not? Because that sounds like something fun to do or that's something that like would taste good, right? So emotional eating, you know, gets a horribly bad rep. It, it, we talk about it like it's the worst thing in the world, right? But really all emotional eating is, is that it's just a coping mechanism. Um, outside of the context of body hatred, it's a pretty benign coping mechanism. You know, it's just really not that big of a deal once you take all this like hor- like terrifying fear of fat into consideration yeah, or out of it consideration. So that's emotional eating. Very straightforward. It's just like, I'm bored. I want a cupcake. It's just, it just is what it is. And again, it is heavily correlated with dieting, but theoretically a normal eater could also eat emotionally sometimes, right? Like it just, again, is what it is. A thing that people do to take care of themselves, you know, when they're feeling stressed out or whatever. Binge eating is, um, the way that I sort of typically describe binge eating, right? Is binge eating is very much associated, is a direct reaction to dieting, deprivation, diet mentality. It's a, it's a direct 
um, reaction to deprivation. And I think that's a really, really important definition is really understanding that there is a difference between I'm bored, I want a cupcake and this feeling of, oh my God, I shouldn't be allowed to have cupcakes. Oh my God, I really want the cupcake, but I'm not, but I know that I can't do that. I, that's going to be bad. If I eat that, I'm going to gain weight. You know, if I eat that, I won't be able to stop. Da, 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 right. There's this fear of the cupcake is the cupcake is wrong. The cupcake is bad. I have to hold myself back from eating the cupcake. And then of course, at some point I crack, right? At some point it's like, I can't sit on my hands trying not to eat any longer. At some point it's just like, I give in, right? I give in and I just fall. And it's just like, ah, right? Like I used to say, like I used to cling to dieting, like I was hanging off the side of a cliff by my fingernails. And when I would fall, it would feel like I was just falling into a pile of brownie batter. Like when I would fall, it would just be rampant. Like I'd be running through the cabinets eating everything that isn't nailed down. Oh, I am the person that's had to cover my food with soap. So I hear you. Right, right. Like it's it's this feeling, it's this reaction to, it's like I shouldn't be doing it. Oh my God, I need to control myself. I need to control myself. I need to control myself. I'm all of this resistance, all of this energy of trying not to do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And I crack. And at some point I I have this full life. Right? I rebel. And I think rebellion is a, is a typical word you hear when it comes to cheating, right? It is a reaction, motivation, a rebellion deprivation so for instance you know let's say I'm on a diet or I'm like trying you know I'm trying to quote be good and you know eat clean or whatever you know fancy language that people use for dieting these days right I'm trying to do the thing that I think is right with food and I and I slip right I have a moment where I'm just like oh I'm just gonna have like a little bite of the thing right and I and I perceive myself to be slipping I perceive myself to have failed for some reason at some point along that slipping way I'll be like oh well you know what I've already screwed up for today so I might as well just like eat everything that isn't nailed down and then tomorrow diet starts again right tomorrow will be day one and today I'm just gonna have a field day I'm just gonna like completely hoard and try and eat as eat as much as I possibly can and then I swear to God tomorrow I won't eat the thing ever again tomorrow is day one tomorrow is the day that I'm gonna like go on my diet so today I'm just gonna oh, right basically binge eat right I mean and so this is binge eating can be a reaction to um, past deprivation right like oh my gosh I'm sitting in my hands trying not to eat and I just can't stand it any longer and so I just I crack I just fall and then of course I just like fall into like and you know three tubs of ice cream or it could be a reaction to like a it's almost like preparation I call it last supper mentality when you're sort of preparing for future deprivation right like diet starts tomorrow so today I'm gonna eat everything I possibly can Right. And so these ways of binge eating, right, which is uh, the way that I define binge eating is very specifically a reaction to deprivation. Right. It, it doesn't really exist outside of the context of dieting. It's eating that we do in relationship to some sort of deprivation or diet mentality. Right. Whether that be future dieting, diet starts tomorrow, so I'm going to eat everything now or, oh, my gosh, I haven't eaten bread for a month. I feel like I'm going to die. I just want to eat like, you know, a entire bag of bread like you know and so these are that's a very very different way of operating around food than emotional eating like emotional eating just is just eating over feelings right yeah. now i think that for a lot of people 
Uh, a lot of people perceive binges to come from emotions because oftentimes people are very often they 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 perceive emotional eating to be the thing that triggers them off the wagon, right? Like a lot of people are like when people are stressed out or feeling anxious or having uncomfortable emotions, they're much more likely to, you know, eat emotionally, right? They're much more likely to get to that point where you're like, you know what, I just need, I just need, I'm just going to have a bite of this chocolate. You know what? I'm just going to have a thing. I'm just going to do the thing. I'm just going to break my diet, my, my whatever restriction du jour that I'm trying to stick to. I'm just going to go ahead and eat the thing, right? Because I'm just stressed out and I just can't hold back any longer from these feelings. These feelings are so overwhelming. So I'm going to do the thing. And then of course, what ends up happening is the emotional eating turns into a binge because they villainize it, right? They, they perceive themselves to have been, to have fallen off the wagon, right? So emotional eating and binge eating can occur simultaneously because so many people villainize emotional eating and consider emotional eating to be the thing that is keeping them from being able to stick to their diet or keeping them from being able to control themselves around food. So I think, you know, for many people, they'll experience these emotional eating and binge eating simultaneously, but functionally and theoretically, they are different things. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So knowing sort of the differences between the two, knowing that we live in a society that is just like rampant with diet culture, if someone's wanting mm-hmm. to start to rebuild their relationship with food, what are the tangible, actionable, like what is the advice that you give them? What are those steps to start on that path to recovery? So if you think about this as like, you know, you actually are a naturally biologically attuned eater. Like when you popped out of the womb, you actually had biological instincts around food, right? Like most animals, you are a human animal, you are a human mammal species. Most animals, they don't need to be told how much to eat. They just instinctively, naturally just eat whatever they eat and that's the end of the story, right? We actually do have instincts around food that have been tampered with by dieting, right? Through the difference between a quote unquote normal eater and like a, you know, binge eater, you know, any someone who perceives himself to have like a psychologically a disrupted relationship with food is that the normal eater doesn't diet. Basically, that's really the only major difference and probably hasn't dieted all that much in their lives um, and doesn't have a sort of fraught, strained, anxious relationship with food where they're constantly trying to lose weight and constantly, of course, like then, you know, dealing with the ramp, you know, the symptoms of that. And so, you know, if you think about it, you really do have, you were born sort of a perfect biologically, naturally in tuned, quote unquote, normal leader until dieting came along and sort of screwed you up. So the question becomes, okay, how do we remove the diet mentality? How do we actually get someone off of dieting so that their biological instincts can kind of emerge? And for many people, the easiest place to start, that's a multi-pronged process. That's a physical process. That's an emotional process. I mean, this is what I, the work that I do with my clients for months, right? Is like, how do we actually peel off the layers of damage that dieting and diet culture and diet thinking has done to you so you're so you can just kind of exist with food so that food can just be food again and it's just not a big deal and you just kind of like eat it when you want it and you don't think about it when you're not you know when you don't want it and it's just no big deal how do we unpeel all of the diet damage and diet trauma and all of the diet thinking that has sort of corrupted your relationship with food and again um most people will start with um relinquishing physical restrictions, right? There's a, there's a, there's a large, there's many, many layers of, of um, work to do when it comes to letting go of dieting and dieting and sort of going back to just having a quote, relationship with food. 
which is food, and you kind of eat it, and when you're not in the to eat it, you eat it, and it's just not a deal. Um, but most of my clients, um, and I think most people, the, the it starts with, um, most people are first introduced to letting go of physical restrictions, right? So actually like re-understanding what not dieting means on the physical plane. Um, a lot of people call this intuitive eating. Uh, so intuitive eating, I would say for those of you who are new to this concept, intuitive eating is almost always where people start in my experience with my clients. That's certainly where most of my clients start their journeys. Um, it's not the end all be all answer with a capital A, but it's a very, very important first step. And basically what that means is actually starting to listen to our bodies around what to eat and to help us make decisions around what we want to eat rather than listening to externally prescribed food rules, right? So Dr. Oz doesn't get to tell me what to eat. Whether or not I'm hungry is going to be a thing that I'll consider when I'm making decisions about food. What I'm actually hungry for, what makes my body feel physically well. These are the kinds of questions I look internally today to sort of make decisions about what I want to eat rather than looking externally, which is what most dieters have been trained into, right? So I think intuitive eating and the pursuit of intuitive eating is almost always, certainly for my clients, is almost what does that actually mean on a physical plane? And what it means is letting go of food rules entirely, actualizing and allowing yourself to eat what you want instead of thinking about Oh, what am I allowed to eat for breakfast? Actually thinking about what am I physically hungry for? Like, am I hungry? How much food does my body physically want? Right? How can I eat in a way that makes me feel physically well? Most dieters aren't thinking about that. They're just thinking about what they should and shouldn't eat. So yeah, that's a good step one right there. And that's and, typically where I have people start. And do you think the book is a good resource? I do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I think that tip, it is a good resource, especially the latest, the, the latest edition. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I will reiterate, it's not the answer with a capital A. I think if you're not dealing with the underlying body image issues, if mm-hmm. you're not dealing with sort of the greater diet mentality of thinking about food as, you know, a thing that is right or wrong or a thing that you can succeed or fail at, right? There is certainly a lot of emotional emotional changes that have to occur to really heal your relationship with food. And that's where my work really comes into play. I'm really much more focused on sort of the emotional challenges, sort of emotional changes that people need to make in order to have a quote, normal relationship with food. But I think intuitive eating is almost always where I have people start. Like most of my clients have read intuitive eating um, before they start working with me even. And I almost always like for my group coaching program, I Um, Anyone who signs up for my group coaching program is basically instructed to read intuitive eating right away, even before we get started. Okay, well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes. So once they kind of figure out intuitive eating, when you're talking about unpacking the emotions and the issues behind that, surely for some people that can be incredibly sensitive. And like, are you... do you recommend counseling for that in any scenarios or? Yeah, I think working with a good coach or counselor is super important. The problem is finding somebody who's actually knows what they're talking about, um, which is not a given. 
there are tons of people out there. I mean, like just hiring your like r- random Joe Schmo therapist is probably not going to do the, do the trick. Yeah. Um, you know, I always typically say if you're going to hire somebody, you want to hire somebody who has a specialty, who, who understands and has a clear understanding of size justice, um, size inclusive politics. Um, they often will identify as health at every size, which means sort of they encourage people to pursue health on health's terms and sort of allow their body to become whatever is genetically inclined to them towards them when they are pursuing a healthful relationship with food rather than what Weight Watchers does or what sort of the traditional medical model says, which is pursue the right size. And then we're just going to assume that you're healthy by the by trying to pursue the right size, right? Which, of course, most people never even achieve or only achieve for a short period of time and then end up rebounding. So this is like a horrible way to approach health. And it also um, makes the assumption that you'll be happy when you're a certain size. It, it sells you this ideal that once you reach thinness or whatever that is, that you'll be happy and all your problems will be solved, which is absolutely not necessarily the case. Definitely not necessarily the case. And I would say for those people who, for whom, I mean, I, I will say, I often, you know, hear clients say like, oh, but I really do, I really am happier when I'm thinner. And that's almost always because they perceive themselves to have more social power, yeah. right? They perceive themselves to be less affected by weight bias, right? Or they, 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 they perceive themselves to be being treated better. I mean, like, I remember when I was 40 pounds later, I was treated very differently in society. And I thought that that was... I was sort of addicted to that feeling, right? I was addicted to sort of the power that came from thinness as it was given to me by society. And so I think that, you know, while I certainly wasn't happy, I mean, I had a rampant eating disorder. I was abusing drugs and speed and all sorts of things to try to control my weight. I was a complete mess, right? I was completely like mentally ill, basically. But if you asked me if thinness made me happy, I probably would have said yes at the time. Because even though I was so miserable, and even though I was, you know, doing all these like crazy things to maintain my size and doing all these like very self destructive behaviors in order to create thinness, and even though I felt totally crazy around food, um, I perceived myself to be really happy about being thin because of the way that I was being treated by the people around me. And so I think that you also really need to be working with somebody who can like sort of, that's why I say size inclusive, working with somebody who understands size justice and understands size as a social issue because that's really what this is, right? I mean, no one cares about being thin in a vacuum. If you lived alone on a desert island, you wouldn't even know what thin or fat was, right? We care about size because of how society treats people on the basis of size. And so, you know, working with a therapist or working with a counselor who doesn't necessarily have that education, in my opinion, is a waste of time. Yeah. And so maybe this is a great opportunity to talk about your masterclass that's coming up. So this podcast will be going live mid-August and your masterclass is starting September 7th. So for anyone that was interested, what does what does the masterclass look like? What's included? So the masterclass is basically an education, right? It is an education that does include coaching, right? And I actually, I do live coaching with people in the masterclass over the phone, right? So if you actually want to have ask me questions directly, there is like a certainly live coaching component. It's it's my most intensive. I mean, it's my flagship program. Um, but at, the, at its core, it is an education around these principles. Like we actually talk about things like size justice. We actually talk about things like weight discrimination. We actually go into... 
you'll never hear me say, oh, it's all in your head. Like no one um, looks at people differently on the basis of size on the reverse because that's bullshit. We all know that's not true, right? And I think that like there are so many coaches out there who are trying to convince people it's all in their head and it's not actually all in their head. Um, but that doesn't mean that dieting is the answer. What that means is that we need to have start to have a different relationship with the subject matter. We need to start to you know, kind of deal with our social environment in a different way rather than continually trying to harm ourselves to try and get something socially that 95% of you will not even end up getting. 95% of you will harm yourselves. You'll gain the weight back. You'll gain the weight back plus some. I mean, 95% of you will just end up diet binge cycling your life away, trying to get praise and approval from others. And then, you know, of course, those who are quote unquote successful at weight suppression, which again is a very, very low number, are typically, there's a huge, huge, huge price to pay, right? Like I always say like, oh my gosh, I love the way people treat me when I'm 40 pounds lighter than my natural weight. And the reality of the situation is like, I can't have healthful relationships. I don't have any real friends. I don't have a life because I can't even go to dinner with somebody because I'm so terrified of like what I'll be able to eat, right? Like I actually can't even in like this, this new social status that I've gotten is actually quite superficial because at the end of the day, like I have a horrible life. Like I'm living with the constant 24 seven, you know, diet devil on my shoulder all day long, right? So, you know, it starts to become, we start to have different conversations. Um, I think the masterclass is really about sort of like educating ourselves about sort of new ways of thinking about body image for sure. That's actually kind of more of the second half of the program. And the first half of the program is really talking about a little bit more of the physical realities of dealing with how, do, what does it mean to not diet? What does it mean to actually come back to quote unquote normal eating, eating when I'm hungry, stopping when I'm full, letting go of the craziness around food. I mean, that's the tagline is how do I stop feeling crazy around food? And I think that that's certainly how I experienced it, right? Like obsession, anxiety around food, constantly thinking about what I was going to eat next and what I was going to eat tomorrow. And what did I eat last night? Guilt, painful, and I didn't think. And but I was just like the food noise constantly through the first half of the, of the masterclass is really about something deal with, sort of reimagine and sort of with a, a, a new way of operating around food. Like, what does it actually mean to, quote, eat normally? Um, what does it mean to not be diet binge cycling all the time, but actually just sort of be eating according to, you know, eating food that's appropriate for my body and actually nourishes me and, you know, have a relationship with food wherein I'm not uh, constantly rebelling against the, like, imaginary food rule or not constantly feeling ashamed of myself, all of these kinds of things. Um, I think that probably the vast majority of my clients consider themselves like, you know, fall into sort of the diet binge cycler category. They relate to food, to words like binge eating. They relate to words like emotional eating. They relate to words like quote unquote food addiction or compulsive eating or all of those sort of spectrum of behaviors. That's certainly what I was dealing with and what I kind of overcame through this process. Um, but then, you know, I certainly also will have clients who just, who don't even necessarily resonate with the sort of binge eating or compulsive behaviors, but just feel, just feel obsessed, right? Just feel quote unquote crazy around food, right? They just, it just feels like food just is the constant source of anxiety in their life. It's just always on in the background and it's very painful to live that way. Yeah, I would definitely point people towards your website, stopfightingfood.com, where there's some three videos that are incredibly helpful. So if they're considering the masterclass, it's a great way to sort of wet their feet into into you and the way that you work and stuff. So 
Exactly, exactly. I mean, if you're struggling with your relationship with food in any capacity, um, whether that be binge eating, whether that just be obsession, anxiety, whether that be just a constant feeling of, oh my gosh, I need to eat correctly today, and probably just a real underlying fear of, of weight, of weight, right? Of fatness, of just like not my body not being good enough, of, you know, whatever that looks like for you, body image issues, right? Uh, definitely check out the video training series. It's a really good introductory resource to kind of dealing with these issues once and for all. Great. Well, we'll definitely link to that. So I want to switch gears a little bit. So part of most of the interviews that we do, we're talking about women that have ordinary women that go on to lead extraordinary lives. So with you, we've kind of really talked about an issue that is relevant for many, many women out there. But now I kind of want to focus on you as a person a little bit. So I'll link to, again, to podcasts where you've talked about sort of how you switched from your career from from finance into, into the world that you're in now. But I'm, I'm really curious, you're in a space that has a lot of noise. Uh, and while, you, while you're really niche, like how, when did you get to the point of deciding that you wanted to start up this, wanted to start up coaching and consulting and, and how did you build that space for yourself in a sector that's really noisy? So, uh, well, I've been doing this for a little while now. I've been doing this for almost six years. I got my coaching certification, I think, seven or eight years ago. And I had—I was after college, I immediately took this like, you know, nine to five job in finance um, that I just sort of felt like I had to take. I was like, this is the thing that's going to give me the most financial security, right? And I did that whole thing for a couple of years and ended up really not being for me for a variety of reasons. Um, and I sort of had this dramatic, I'm going to quit and go find myself, eat, pray, love kind of moment. I uh, was like, you know, I really only want to pursue things that are legitimately interesting to me, right? You know, I'm just going to, I'd rather, you know, have less money and less financial security. Again, I was young at the time, so I was coming from that sort of privileged position of not having to support a family or anything like that. Um, But I was like, you know what, I'm just, I'm just going to pursue my interests vigorously. And if that means nannying for now while I figure it out, I'm, I'm willing to do that. If that means bartending for now, I'm willing to do that. You know, whatever whatever the, the thing is. And so I I did exactly just that. I, took, I basically got a nannying job and just started looking into, like, what do I actually want, right? Like if money was not enough to motivate me to do something all day long every day for the rest of my life, what would I actually care to do? And I just made a, a very conscious effort and intention that I was just going to, you know, follow my nose, right? If an interest took me somewhere, I was going to explore it. And I was going to nanny so that I could give myself the time to do that. Um, and one of the things that came about for me was I got invited to a dinner by hosted by a health coach, which was a job that I'd never heard of before. I'd heard, I think I must have heard the term life before. Um, I'm sort of on the earlier train. I'm not that new in the field. And think about it. When I, uh, the Institute for Integrated Nutrition, which is like the biggest, you know, the, by far and away the largest health coach certification program that exists, I was in their first or second online class. Oh, wow. So, yeah. So before that, all of their classes were in, they had in-person classes. So, which, I mean, they were still had tons of graduates, but it was much smaller by definition. Health coaching didn't really blow up until 
IIN and then subsequent schools as well really started to put their curriculum online. Um, so it was a little bit, I mean, I would say it was less noisy than it is today, for sure. I was definitely like kind of, I mean, again, eight years ago, this was, it was, a, it was a different, it was still loud, it was still noisy, but it was a different place than it is today, but by, by a wide measure. Um, and so, yeah, and so I, I just decided, you know, after talking to this health coach, and she had this, of course, very glamorous life, right? She's like, oh, yeah, I just, you know, teach people how to cook vegan food. And, you know, I host these dinner parties, and I charge $60 a head for people to come to my dinner parties. And we do cooking classes and I, you know, charge people like, you know, $150 an hour to talk to them over the phone about like, you know, their quote unquote health goals and holistic nutrition. And I just being a person who spent a lot of time thinking about nutrition in my past and, you know, sort of having this eating disordered history, I just was like, oh my gosh, this sounds like a amazing job. This sounds like a dream job. And so I sort of made the decision that I was going to sign up and get this certification because I was also, I was, again, I was nannying, I was, I was following the, I was just following my nose, following where my interests took me. And, um, you know, I had a little bit of cash and I was just like, okay, I'm going to just pop it into this certificate and just see where that leads, right? I'm just going to go for it. This is something I'm interested in. I'm going to go for it. So I got my, um, I signed up for the uh, health, health coaching certification program at Institute for Integrative Nutrition and, um, and very quickly thereafter ended up being hired by the Institute for Integrative Nutrition. I quarters is, um, and sent out like a call for submissions to actual marketing and so I ended up going and I got a job at IAN and that's really where things everything started changing for me like once I got a job at IAN like now I officially work in the wellness field like now I officially really had a full-time job working in online wellness in the coaching world um, and I got really immersed in it and I was meeting all sorts of different people in it and um, you know sort of quote unquote networking and I really like I kind of became consumed with it and learning all about it and simultaneously I was also looking for the solution and still working out my own relationship with food um, and th these two things were kind of happening side by side right I was getting immersed into the wellness culture and kind of getting immersed in the business side of coaching um, and then also simultaneously I was sort of working out my own I hate to use the word method but you know, again, there wasn't a lot of really solid, I hadn't found a solid solution to my problem yet at that point. I'd mm -hmm. see, I'd, I'd found bits and pieces that were helpful and I felt like I was on the road to something, but I didn't, it wasn't, it didn't fully click into place for me yet. I was still learning the solution to this quote unquote problem, this quote unquote binge eating problem. And so at some point along the way, I just continued to learn and continued to learn. And I pursued, you know, learning about uh, learning more about, um, you know, all these various topics. And then I, I kind of ended up at some point, I, the last straw for me was really starting to learn about health at every size. Um, but uh, there were many, many different things along the way that also impacted my understanding things, social justice, size justice, all sorts of issues. But at some point, I started also blogging. So there were a few different things going on all at once. It was like I was working in the business world. I started blogging about what I was learning about binge eating recovery. And then I, um, mind, body, green. This was also such an interesting time in history, right? I mean, this could never be replicated today. Mind, body, green was just 
getting started. When I started blogging, MindBodyGreen was a new fledgling business. They were like desperately, like they were like looking for writers, right? Like, like, and somebody, I think it was like my mom's yoga instructor knew Jason, who is the founder of Mind Body Green, and she was, oh, he has like he's got these starting this blog, Mind Body Green. It's a health blog. I love your writing because I was blogging at the time. I love your writing. They would love it. I'm gonna set you up, and and literally, the, I you know had an email introduction to the founder of Mind Body Green at the time when Mind Body Green was just getting started, just getting they just they like literally had just launched like six months before this, and I you know kind of got an introduction and I started writing for My Body Green and I was one of the original, you know, I was one of the very, very, very first early contributors to Mind Body Green and when Mind Body Green took off, I kind of got swept away with their success a little bit and it's interesting, I mean, I don't really write for them at all anymore but, but at the time it was like right time, right place. I, you know, I kind of got carried with, with their success. I, I also, my writing um, kind of blew up and I was always linking back to my own blog and then I started building my email list from there. So yeah, it was a lot of, it was a lot of like preparation, preparation meets opportunity, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. So for anyone that's looking at becoming a coach, whether it's a life coach or a health coach or whatnot, are there certain characteristics or things that you think certain personality traits that you think are better suited to it for people who want to be a coach specifically I think that one of the things really amazing about coaching is that everyone coaches differently and there are lots of different styles of coaching which is a little bit I think dissimilar from like let's say like traditional therapy where there may be there's a little bit more of like a specific uniform way that professionals are supposed to operate and sort of trained into operating in coaching well certainly there's some level of training there's a lot more opportunity for people to kind of be creative and do their own thing for better or for worse, by the way, this isn't always a good thing. Um, this can be a very dangerous thing, but yeah, but I don't necessarily think that there's a one personality type that's right for coaching. I mean, I have a staunchly different personality type and a very, very different way of operating with clients than many of my other friends who are coaches. And I think that it just, it's not really a, are you suited for coaching, but more, what kind of coach are you going to be question. Yeah. And that's great. Cause I've been hearing on different interviews, like whether it was, uh, you know, I interviewed someone yesterday about, uh, entrepreneurship and they were just saying what was great was that they learned over time that not everyone is this myth of someone being born an entrepreneur. She was like, it's crap. I was never like, she was like, I was never right. inclined to this when I was younger. So I think people get this messaging a lot of, I have to be a certain type. I have to do this in order to do that. And I, I, I love what you're saying about coaching, that there are different people for different streams of it and different, and they'll attract different clients. And there, there's a space for everybody right. that's passionate about it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's my, that's my experience. I mean, I have a very distinct coaching style. I think anyone who's worked with me will tell you that. And I'm sure that, you know, I probably wouldn't have the temperament for traditional therapy. Um, but as a coach, like, I feel like I have the ability to be like, for instance, more conversational and more, um, like a little bit more of like equal dialogue with my clients. You know, I, I think of myself more as an educator and more of a, t- more of a teacher even than a coach. Like I really have something very specific that I want to teach people. 
um, it's I don't I'm not just there to sort of listen to and reflect back to my clients necessarily. Like my clients come to me having very specific things that they need to learn in order to change their relationship with food. They have very specific things that they need to unlearn that they've been taught by diet culture. And I will be very direct with my clients about what those things are. Yeah. So we'll move into the five wrap-up questions that we ask all of our interviewees. So what is one thing or project that you're working on that gets you really fired up in a good way? I would say uh, I get very, very fired up anytime I have the opportunity and, and sometimes get fired up in, an, in to, to, to a too great extent, to an extent that burns me out. And so I have to be conscious of this. But I get very, very fired up sort of anytime I have the opportunity to share information about body activism, right? And talking about weight as a social justice issue. I mean, another thing, talk about like different styles of coaching. Um, not only am I an educator, you know, more so than I feel like I even resonate with the word coach, although I think coaching is certainly also a big part of what I do, of course, but I'm also an activist, right? I'm also like very, very distinctly and specifically a political activist when it comes to weight related issues and body image. I am a hardcore feminist and that's something that very, very much impacts the way that I talk about these issues, right? And I really want to help people understand that the way that they're experiencing their bodies is not just a psychological issue. It's not just because of your family in a vacuum, although of course your family may very well have influenced the way you think about weight, right? This is a huge social justice issue that is impacting so many people, right? Your family is the way they are because of this crazy culture in which we live. And so that is, you know, very, very important to me is sort of really recognizing myself, not only just as a coach or educator, but also as an activist, as somebody who is, you know, fighting to change a social perspective, right? And fighting for the rights of marginalized people and for victims of weight discrimination and weight bias. Um, and so that is, yeah, I think that that's probably the thing that I get most fired up about is sort of when we start to get into like a little bit more of a political conversation about weight. Is there what's the most inspiring book that you've read in the past few years? I know you asked this question in our very first round and I, and I probably said uh, when things about and Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. I don't know if I would call it the most inspiring book. For me, that was just the most important book that I've read in my life. Like, most important book I've read in several years. Most important book I've read, you know, arguably in my conscious memory is probably this book, When Things Fall Apart by Pema Chodron. So I'll just repeat that because I know that <laughs> that's what I mentioned last time. Yeah, absolutely. So, like, how did it make an impact on you? Well, Pema Chodron is a Buddhist, is a Tibetan Buddhist nun. And so she talks about kind of healing your relationship with the world and dealing with anxiety. I don't know if it's necessarily inspiring. Like, I don't know if that's the word that I would use to describe it so much as like very, very incredibly helpful and healing book. Like it's the most incredible, it's the most important book that I've ever read personally. It's changed my life. It's changed the way that I think about the world, right? It's changed the way that I operate around all kinds of various emotional issues and discomforts that I've faced throughout my life. Um, and yeah, so that's sort of been, it's like a very deeply spiritually healing book for me. Um, and I, you know, I've been always a spiritual seeker in my life. I've always been looking for alternative solutions to emotional pain, right? I mean, I think that that, I think men, most coaches are looking for that and 
some to some extent. I've always been looking for alternative solutions to emotional pain, and um, her work has just been the work that's resonated with me the most in recent years. It's been the most impactful in recent years, which is interesting because I remember picking up her book five years ago and not even understanding what she was talking about. Like I remember five years ago reading her, somebody recommended one of her books to me and I was just like, it went completely over my head. Like it felt really esoteric. I was like, what is she talking about? I didn't get it. And then two years ago, I picked it up again. I was going through a really, really hard time in um, one of my intimate relationships. And I picked it up again and it was like all of a sudden it just like clicked like something it's like something made sense to me in a way that was very deep that I'd never experienced really before except maybe in my relationship with food actually um I'd had a similar experience um with my relationship with my food and really like letting go and surrendering and really allowing my body to be what it was and she talks about very similar themes like surrender and and letting go and you know I think things that typically especially westerners have a really hard time with these concepts as as important as talk about them being as sort of self circles I think westerners have a really really hard time with these topics because the culture does not tell us to let go. The culture tells us to hang on. And so, yeah, but for whatever reason, you know, I was struggling in the area of my life and I picked up one of her books and it was just like, I feel like I just like found, like I had this like peace and freedom that I, I hadn't really ever experienced before other than in my relationship with food when I had the sort of breakdown moment. And I was like, whoa, all of these things that I teach about food, they actually apply to every single area of my life. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, and she just really helped me find language for that. So, yeah, so I would say that, that was, that's probably the most impactful book that I've read. And since then, I've, I've sort of, I devour her work. And yeah. I've, you know, started learning more about just, you know, Eastern philosophy in general, which I was always interested in. But it just felt really, again, it felt really esoteric for so many years. I was like, oh, people say Buddhism is helpful. But I just didn't get it. Like, it didn't connect. Like, I didn't, I, there was something about it where I just couldn't go there I couldn't make it work in my brain and then you know it's interesting like then something happens in your life and all of a sudden you get it it's yeah. kind of funny how that happens it's like when you're ready the teacher appears or whatever that phrase is I don't know yeah lots of right place right time yeah do you have a favorite quote or sort of words that you live by Ooh, god that's a really 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 hard one Lately, I'll say, and this is <laughs> this is probably like a little bit of a cliche one, but I feel like it's like under uh, it, people forget how important it really is. But sort of, you know, the concept of sort of like one day at a time, um, which is or just like concept of just like just trying to keep myself in the present moment. I feel like I've been thinking about that quite a bit lately, not getting ahead of myself, just being really willing to stay where I am in whatever I'm dealing with and not run for the um, run to plan some solution, right? Like be willing and being open to the possibility of the future being what it is tomorrow and not actually worrying about that and just being where I am. Just all I need to do is sit in whatever's happening today and just deal with my life today. So I've been kind of living by the one day at a time mantra lately. I think one day at a time is almost a simplified version of, of what I'm experiencing, but that's the easiest way that I can say it, right? This is the idea of just, Pem, actually Pema Chodron, she says specifically, she just says, stay, stay, stay. 
right? Like that's her, the mantra that she says, she says that frequently in her book, stay, stay, which is sort of the idea of like, just be willing to experience what this particular moment is giving you without running to like planning and thinking and overthinking and analyzing and like, how am I going to like, you know, make sure that I don't die of cancer in 10 years, right? Like it's just so, we so easily get like caught up in all of these things in the future. And I think being willing to just have our lived experience today is really, really important. So absolutely. Yeah. 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 What's the best life lesson that you've learned or advice that you've been given? I mean, I think the ultimate life lesson that I've learned is like, you're just not in control of as much as you think. Um, you're not in control of much is the truth. <laughs> we're taught again in the culture in which we live that we're in control of everything, right? Not like I can manifest my destiny and make whatever I want to have happen, happen to me. But I think so much of living well is actually really being willing to respect and honor those things that I can't control, right? And being willing to work with sort of life as it's given to me, right? Like, of course, there are, there are, things that I can do, things that I can do to sort of impact the course and direction of my life. But I think that the most easeful and the least frustrating and the most joyful way to live is to actually work with those things that do just come up and those things that are given to me, right? Sort of by you know, theoretically the universe or the grace of God or whatever you want to call it, right? There are so many different there are so many areas of life in which I'm not in control, right? Like I'm not in control of who I'm going to meet tomorrow. I'm not in control of so many things. And I think we have to be willing to work with that reality. I think that like sort of living well, living our best life really has to do with being able to work with that reality rather than constantly feel this pressure and anxiety of trying to make it go all the way that we think that it should go all the time. I think that that's basically a setup for failure, a setup certainly for frustration. So yeah, that's sort of the most important life lesson I've learned is, is you're not in control of everything. And, and that's actually not a bad thing. That's actually something to, to work with. So that ties really well into our last question. And you've kind of already answered it. But Isabel, what does it mean to you to live your best life? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I would say my living my best life means yeah, being able to work with what comes to me, being able to actually roll with the gifts that I'm given, right? Being able to enjoy life on life's terms rather than constantly try to make it go my way, right? Like if I'm constantly trying to make it go my way, I'm sort of, I'm like sort of crushing the spirit of life, of what life's about. I just want to be right to the possibility and mystery. I feel like the more open to possibility and mystery I am, the happier I am be yeah well that's great well thank you so much for joining us on the podcast for a second time (laughs) yeah my pleasure thank you for having me i find isabel entertaining and awesome she really lays it down and says exactly says it the way it is If that's the kind of attitude that you need and coaching that you think you would benefit from, I highly recommend you check out her masterclass, which is coming up. So again, you can find all the links to that in the show notes, which are at girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast forward slash number 34. So if you guys enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and leave it a review. It literally will take you a minute and it makes a huge difference to the algorithms and people being able to find us in iTunes. So I would so greatly appreciate it. And finally, next up on the podcast on August 31st, Thursday, 
We're joined by Leah Gerard Cole, who is the creator, one of the co-founders behind Love Child Organics. So if you are in North America and you have been down the baby food aisle to get those sort of food pouches for your kids of veggies and fruits, you will have seen Love Child Organic. You've probably used it. It's probably in your diaper bag. Now, Leah was on Dragon's Den Canada, and that's kind of how I had first heard about them back in the day. And then I became a mom and a big user of the product. So I was really lucky that Leah agreed to do this interview. We talk about her book, uh, her cookbook, It All Begins With Food, which I have been using and loving. We talk about building a company, especially at a time when she had, you know, new kids. And of course, we talk about Dragon's Den and what went into that pitch. So... Make sure that if you're not subscribed, you subscribe, and that way you won't miss the episode. So again, if you can leave a review, that would be fantastic. Take care, and remember, whatever it is that you're wanting to do in your life, action is what is required. So what is the step that you can take today to achieve your goals? And take it. Okay, take care. See you next time. (laughs)